do I trust God enough? And so God tests us to see where we are with him. Time and time again, he's not done with Israel. He's still not done with Israel. He's not done with us. So when we hit the wall, and we hit hard things in our lives, we need to look at that factor of God working to bring us to a point where we choose either to go ahead or to stay put and disobey. But if he's bringing us to a point where we have to make a decision, we need to trust God and move forward. That's what we're going to be looking at today. Just like last week, we had to look at at the waters of Merrill, where they had to trust God for the water and then trust him again for the manna. So let's take a minute and have a word of prayer, and then we'll go on with the last lesson. Now, there's a whole lot more in the book of Exodus, um, things that are important, but things that take a lot of study. And so <laughs> Michelle and I were just talking. We're going to stop here, but maybe we'll come back again. There's, there's the giving of the law, and, and that sounds kind of boring, but actually it's not. <laughs> and, and there's the building of the tabernacle and, and the things that the Lord has for us to learn about him in those sections. And um, maybe we'll come back to those. But for we thought for the, the next session, you have some flyers on the table if you want to take them. We're going to do five sessions of parables just because it's nice sometimes to take a break. Um, for her and I, we've studied a lot. Our brains are kind of cooked. <laughs> and so, so for us to take the parables, it's like, it's just refreshing. And I think you'll find it refreshing. It's a, it's a good thing to take for spring. It kind of lifts you up. Some of these things are really heavy. You have to make hard decisions here. It doesn't mean that they aren't hard in the New Testament either, but they're different. And Jesus is speaking, and it's a different um, vibe, really. So let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll go into Lesson 7 and finish up here. So, Lord, we really thank you for what the Word of God holds. Thank you for the lessons that we've studied. And, Lord, I'm just praying that each of us are able to take those things and apply them to our lives. Thank you for the faithfulness of Moses and thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to your people. Help us to see that in these lessons today, how faithful you are to people who sometimes are so stubborn. We just praise you, God, for your goodness to us. We thank you for all that you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. So today, Exodus 17, and we're going to look at <clears throat> testings and blessings. So I want to start reading in Exodus 17. We're going to go through the portion on the water from the rock. So it's Exodus 17, 1 through 7. Then we'll come back and, and talk about these things. Now this is after the manna. Big blessing from God. So after that, the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. And Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? Now they put the Lord to the test. We are not to do that. They question him. God doesn't mind if we ask him questions, but they're accusatory. 
There's a difference. What's wrong with you, God? Why aren't you helping us? Why are you mean to us, etc.? We can question God, and God doesn't mind. He's used to people questioning him. But he's, he does not want us to turn against him in our questioning. So he goes, Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there. And you need to picture yourself without water. Not going to be too nice either. And they grumbled against Moses and they said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? God, what are you doing to us? Why are you making us die here in the desert? Why didn't you leave us where we were? And then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people. Now look at this. Okay, Moses, you walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Now, they're down in, if you look at your maps from last week, down in the lower portion of that, that desert area that they were in. And there are some maps here if some of you don't have uh, maps to check out. Anybody else? Um, see down at the bottom where it says Mount Sinai. Sometimes Horeb and Sinai are used separately. Um, and to be honest with you, I'm I'm not sure why the names are different. The commentaries I look at say sometimes it's called Horeb, sometimes Mount Sinai, um, depending on what God is doing there. And some say that Horeb is here and Sinai is here and they're close together, so it's part of a group of mountains, kind of know how mountains go. But at any rate, <clears throat> they're at what is called Mount Horeb. They, and they stood, I, God says, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out for the out of it for the people to drink. Now think about that. Strike the rock. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, "Is the Lord among us or not? Did He abandon us?" So let's take a look at this and see what lesson. God has for his people and for us. As you read that account, you see the very familiar behavior of Israel over and over. So let's just take those statements. They traveled from place to place as what? The Lord, the Lord commanded and camped at Rephidim and there was no water for the people to drink. They quarreled with Moses. Some of your Bibles will say grumbled. They quarreled with Moses. They tested the Lord and blamed Moses, basically. Now, what is so familiar about verses 3 and 4? Take a look at them. What has Israel failed to learn? Trust. Trust. Look at they were thirsty for water. They grumbled against Moses. 
they blamed Moses and blamed the Lord in doing so. Instead of turning to the Lord, they turned to Moses, expect him to be able to answer all of those questions, which of course he cannot. But they blamed the Lord for delivering them from Egypt. I wish I would have stayed there, basically is what they said. Wish we could go back there and eat the good food that we had there, which is a lie. The food that they ate, they were slaves. They weren't eating so well as they remembered. And so nothing is right. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us <clears throat> die here of thirst? And then Moses cries out to the Lord, and Moses goes to God, first of all, instead of going anywhere else. And the Lord gives him such very specific instructions. He says, walk on ahead of the people. Take some elders with you. Take the staff in your hand with which you held up over the Nile. And then he says, I'm going to stand before you by the rock. I'm going to stand before you by the rock at Horeb. Now, Horeb or Mount Sinai is where the Ten Commandments were given, and a lot of things happened there. Later on in the book of, Israel, of, um, of Exodus, you'll find out that um, and the people of Israel sinned against the Lord. That mountain, Mount Sinai, just erupted in earthquake and smoke and fire and power, and the people were frightened of it. But here, it's kind of a gathering place. And so I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, strike the rock, and water will come out of it so that the people can drink. Strike the rock. Now, I want you to, we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 4, and take a look at those verses. Because we find that all of this is a type or picture again of the Lord Jesus. So 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. And Jesus explains the symbolism or the, or the picture that is being put before us here when he has Moses strike the rock. Can you imagine striking a rock and having water come out of that rock? It would not happen without the hand of God. So 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, let's just read this. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. Moses is, or Paul is talking here about Israel. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud. Now that means identified with um, identified with Moses or, or buried with him, baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, joined with him. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was who? Christ. Christ. Go there and strike the rock, and water will come out of it. Now, I want you to think about this. And in the question, I have this. And I want you to just think about the significance of what we're reading here and the action that's taking place 
in Exodus. Doesn't seem like the two could ever go together. But I want you to think first about, about who these people were. Who were these people that were crying out against God? His children. They're his children. <clears throat> what had they experienced? All of this time on this journey, what had they experienced with God? His faithfulness over and over and over again. So who accompanied them? Who led them? Who fed them? God and God alone. And now they're here and there's no water and Moses goes ahead of them and strikes the rock. And water gushes out of that rock for the whole group to drink. Can you imagine that? I want you to put yourself there. Water coming out of a rock in the middle of a desert. Doesn't happen without God. Manna from heaven doesn't happen without God. The parting of the Red Sea didn't happen without God. The water at Merah did not happen without God sweetening that water. The wells at Elam, pure and clean, and the palm trees did not happen without the hand of God leading them. And so here they are, looking for water, and of all things, God has Moses strike a rock in the middle of the desert, and water gushes out enough for that whole large group. <clears throat> Impossible, right? But for God. What should they begin to figure out? <coughs> God, is, God is with them. God loves them. God cares for them. He is their God. Now, when we get to the New Testament, how do they treat him when Jesus arrives on the scene? When he himself walks on water, when he feeds 5,000 people, what's the response of those religious leaders to the Lord Jesus Christ himself? Show us a sign. What? Show us a sign. Show us a sign. Last week when we read about the manna, they're saying to Jesus, who is standing there, well, what kind of sign are you going to do so that we know that we can believe on you? So here we have this happening in the Old Testament. And then we read when Paul writes, and that rock was Christ. So <clears throat> tell me about that. What do you think when you see that? Was Christ with them in the desert? Yes. All right. I want you to recognize this, that all of the fullness of God <clears throat> was with Israel in the desert. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one. But each one of them had a function, even there in the Old Testament. He is not absent. He is present in the cloud he is the angel of God who is with them. And I'll, I'll show you references, Exodus 13, 21. He's in the cloud. 
Exodus 14, 19, the angel of God moved from the front of them to the back of them. A picture of a th theophany of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The manna from heaven, what was it? Jesus says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And he fed us, the Lord Jesus Christ, through the power of God. You see, all of that is a picture of Jesus behaving for us. Not absent from the Godhead, always present in the Godhead. But in this portion of scripture, we even go farther because we can see the Holy Spirit pictured. And if you turn over <clears throat> to John chapter 4 and John chapter 7, I want you to get this because Jesus himself uses these words. Let's look at John chapter 4, 10 through 13. You know the story very, very well. John chapter 10, verse 13, or 4, verse 13 says, Everyone who drinks this water <clears throat> will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. In other words, I am the living water. So turn over to John chapter 7. Last week we, we were in John chapter 6, and he said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. In John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, Jesus completes the picture of the type for us here. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. And look at verse 39. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. And this portion of scripture looks forward to the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. After Jesus went to the cross and rose again, came back to his disciples and poured out the Holy Spirit upon them. But you see, I want you to understand that in the Old Testament, even the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are all active in various ways and picture for us what is going to come in the New Testament. So when Moses strikes that rock and water pours out, that rock was a picture of Christ. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. <clears throat> He is our rock. The Bible uses that term over and over and over again. The solidness of Christ, the wholeness of Christ, the um, inconquerable Christ. He is stronger than all. And here we have the water and the Holy Spirit being pictured in what happened way back there in the Old Testament. And that rock was Christ, and out of him flowed what? In the New Testament, out of that rock flowed living water. It should give you shivers. To understand that the wholeness, the fullness of God was present in it all. So sometimes we think of God as this isolated 
person. We think of Jesus here on earth, isolated. He's Jesus. We think of the Holy Spirit. He's the Holy Spirit. And they are all in their own roles, functioning, but have been since forever. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now we come a little further, and the Spirit of God hovered upon the face of the deep, present at creation. Then we get to the New Testament, and we read about Jesus. By him were all things created, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, inseparable, all of one, all the fullness of God. Jesus himself reveals the fullness of God. The Holy Spirit himself reveals the fullness of God. God the Father reveals the fullness of God. Cannot separate them. But yet, unique and individual, and yet one. But I want you to see that what was going on in Exodus pictures for us the very same thing and the very same God that works within us here. Father, Son, our rock, and Holy Spirit, that regenerating fullness of God. The Holy Spirit has a special role, and in that desert, how do you think they responded to that water? If you got water in the desert, how would you feel? Refreshed, regenerated, thankful. And that's what happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. We are regenerated. I want you to turn to Titus. Yes, go ahead. The Israelites did not have that. It hadn't been revealed to them. The three right. Them. So they, their focus only was on God, and they were used to many gods. So... I'm trying to cut them a little slack. <laughs> <laughs> they, they do not have to recognize that God is that Holy Spirit. But they, they would know from what God was doing within their midst that God was the fullness of all of these things. He is the fullness of that fountain flowing deep and wide. God is the fullness of that rock that stands solid for us. It's pictured in that. And God is the fullness of the protection of the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, the angel of the Lord that appears as a theophany, who pictures really the Son of God. Now, in the Old Testament, they were familiar with the Spirit of God. They were familiar with the Son of God. Their, the prophets prophesied about all of those that would come. So these early ones that are way back in Exodus may not have known as fully as we do. But you see, God is active in every part. When we read about the creation of the world, it's not just this one little isolated God. God in all his fullness is there. And the same thing happens throughout all of Scripture. God in his fullness. So that people get to know him differently. Was the spirit of the Lord upon the psalmist? Mm -hmm. It says so. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Was the spirit of the Lord upon prophets? Mm -hmm. The spirit of the Lord came upon the prophets and they would speak. Now, they didn't have a relationship with him as we do. But the knowledge of him would be given as needed. Each of those. 
And the Son of God was prophesied throughout Scripture that one would come, even as an offspring of um, the human race. In other words, that there would become that well, there would be one that would come that would crush the head of the serpent. Remember that way back in Genesis three fifteen, foretelling that one would come from the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. So nuggets throughout. Not full knowledge, but yes, some. Genesis 24, um, 26 says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image. So we know it was the fullness of God. It was all the fullness of God. Let us make man in our image. So those who obeyed and followed the Lord would have some knowledge of God as God gave it, of God in his fullness, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord moved. You can read that in the Old Testament. Moved upon them. Didn't inhabit them as we have received him. But the knowledge of him was there. The knowledge of the Son of God coming was there. If they followed the word of God. Questions? Just so you understand that, that all of God is present in all of our lives, was present there, maybe not revealed as we know him now, maybe not revealed as inhabiting our lives, but certainly with them and around them and came upon them as God willed it. You'll read about that if you, in, the, in the prophets, that the Spirit of God came upon the prophets, so on. Yes? I was going to say, even in the very most basic form, how did they think they were ever going to get out of Egypt if it wasn't God? Right. You know, Pharaoh wasn't going to let them go. Mm -hmm. And millions of people. Right. You know, they had to know that there was something <laughs> miraculous that was happening. Absolutely. And think about the miracles that God did in taking two million people who were slaves and with no will of their own mm -hmm. or motivation of their own. Gather them around Moses, who had come out of literally nowhere, out of Midian, come back, who was a shaky leader at best at first, and gather them around them to the point where they'd be willing to slay a lamb in their flock and put the blood on the door and think, well, that's going to get me out of Egypt. <laughs> and it was their best lamb. And it was their best lamb. <laughs> I mean, it, it took faith for that. Somebody came along now and told you, well, listen, you can get out of this mess of the world we're in right now if you just, you know, kill your cat. Do something. No. <laughs> it, it, I know. thought they were nuts. <laughs> yes. You know, the word that keeps coming to me as I'm talking about all of this is learning. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like you said before, these are people that really didn't have any knowledge. That's right. And... God is teaching them through all of these circumstances and they are learning. And then I right. go to the New Testament verse of, I've learned to be content under all circumstances. Mm -hmm. It's, we're always learning. Continually. And, and we're learning to trust God and God reminds yeah. us that he can be trusted. And it's a lifelong process. And I, I find comfort in that because mm -hmm. there's times when I do doubt God and I, I wonder yeah. what in the world is happening? What are you doing? And I have to think back at the track record in my life, you know, and remind myself 
that he's been faithful before. He'll be faithful again. And I'm learning. So I'm going to learn until I go over to be with him. Well, and that's <laughs> exactly. have it all figured out. And that's exactly what happens here. These are all nuggets of truth. They've never heard for the most part, little bits and pieces that some of their ancestors knew about God. So he's revealing himself to them. So every time something happens, when the manna came, we read then in the New Testament that it is the bread of life. Well, we knew for the Israelites, it was the bread of life for them back in the desert. But now we see that fulfilled for us in Jesus Christ, who says, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. Then we see water <clears throat> come out of a rock. I mean, just think about that. You're standing out there, thirsty as can be, <clears throat> and Moses leads you to a half a mountain. Don't just think it's a little rock. But hits that thing, and water gushes out enough to give water to two million people. And they're satisfied. They had to have wondered what was going on, but we get to the New Testament we have, we have the book that tells us what's going on here. So all of that pictured for us, what Jesus wants to do for us in the water when we're in the desert. Wow, I'm thirsty. I'm dry. I need to be filled with the Spirit of God. And that water from the rock gushes forth. I want to take you to Titus 3. <clears throat> starting at verse 3. At one time, we too were, listen to this, foolish, disobedient, <clears throat> deceived, <clears throat> and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But... When the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, washing and rebirth. I'm standing in the desert, parched and thirsty in my life. Things aren't going well. I'm as dry as a bone. I am away from the Lord, and I am in need of something. And in the desert of our lives, <clears throat> he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Oh, that water of the Holy Spirit washing over us, cleansing us, taking the dust of our lives away, taking care of the thirst that we have in the deserts of our lives. And here's God speaking to us from the Old Testament about the work that the Holy Spirit wants to do in us. That's what this is about. It's referring to that work of the Holy Spirit, cleansing us, giving us life in Christ Jesus. Okay, any questions before we go on? All right, the next thing that goes on here, <clears throat> as soon as they've had this drink of water, back in Exodus 17, I'm going to read through to the end. 
we find that they, they find themselves in battle. The Amalekites. In our notes and in your um, study guide, I said, after, after Israel had tasted of the heavenly food, after the water from the rock refreshed them, and while they were resting at Rephidim, a warring tribe, and that's just when war comes upon us, spiritual warfare, after we've been at a spiritual high, boom, here comes Satan. A warring tribe, the Amalekites, came and attacked them. And this is important to note. The Amalekites were descendants of Esau, who sold his birthright to his brother Jacob for a pot of stew. Esau in scripture represents the old nature, the flesh, the natural man. Deuteronomy 25 tells us of the Amalekites' tactics that they had no fear of God, and this is Israel's first battle against a skilled enemy. Israel never went to war before this. Do you notice that? They were slaves, and they weren't soldier slaves. So now, at the, at the height of their resting, <clears throat> when they're feeling really good, bam, here comes the enemy. And he's a smart one. He's got a lot of practice at this. If you trace the pattern of the Amalekites through scripture, you will see that Amalek is always working against believers, always. When Saul sinned in the book of 1 Samuel, um, and didn't destroy Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Mm -hmm. He lost everything. He had been anointed by God to be the king of Israel. But in his pride, <coughs> the Amalekites came upon him and, and he sinned against God. You'll see that over and over again, that, that picture of the Amalekites or Esau's children always represent the old nature, the flesh that comes and <coughs> swoops in to pull us away. So that's what happens here. So let's just read down through this portion. The Amalekites <clears throat> came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim, right after they had had this good water to drink. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. This is Moses. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. And as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were, were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Now, how many of you have um, taught this little lesson in Sunday school or heard it about Joshua fighting in the valley below and Moses standing on the mountain with his hands raised toward the Lord? It's a picture to us really of spiritual warfare, of how we are to battle against the enemy while we're fighting in the valley below. All of the things that um, Amalek knows that are going to get us. He brings his best soldiers against us. The enemy Satan. He's, a, he's, an, 
He is a, a tool of Satan that Satan uses to drag us down. <clears throat> so he comes upon us when we're in our, our best spiritual condition. Praise the Lord. I'm so happy in the Lord. Bam, get ready. It's going to happen. <laughs> we think we're walking high. And he comes in, and all of a sudden we realize we don't know as much as we thought we did. We're not as prepared as we thought we, we were. We don't know how to battle the Lord. And what this is, is a lesson for us in spiritual warfare. Amalek represents an, a messenger of Satan, Amalek, one of the foes. And in the New Testament, he's referred to as the flesh, the old nature. We'll, we'll read some verses in a moment. Moses standing on the hill represents us as soldiers of God, taking our place in Christ Jesus in the heavenlies and calling down the powers of heaven to work on our behalf in the valley below. We're seated in Christ in heavenly places, right? <clears throat> Moses is there raising his hands toward God and calling down the powers of heaven work on the enemy down below. And so <clears throat> we have this, this picture for us. And I want to, um, let me see, I don't think I need to, let's just take the questions I have on page two and we'll fill in your blanks as we go. Where is Joshua and his army during this battle? They are down yeah. fighting in, in the valley, okay? And Moses and Aaron and her are at the top of the hill. I always picture that as, as, as standing before God and, and calling out those powers of heaven that the principality, we have, we have authority over principalities and powers because we are seated in Christ far above them. And we stand with our hands raised toward the Lord and say, Lord, we need your help here, down here in this valley. And so as Moses raises his hands to the Lord, <clears throat> what occurs on the battlefield? Israel. They win. And the outcome of the battle is that Aaron and her um, stand in, in, on the hilltop with Moses and those Amalekites um, lose that battle. But I want to take this, if you go over to page three on your outline, we want to talk about what spiritual warfare is and how God wants us to stand. Because again, this is a picture for us of what God wants us to do. So what does this conflict with Joshua on the battlefield and Moses on the mountaintop teach us about the necessity of intercessory prayer? An intercessor is someone who stands in the gap, someone who stands for you or with you. And if there's no one there, God himself will stand with us. For the Lord Jesus Christ prays for us. He's our advocate with the Father praying. But let's look at Ephesians 6 and take a look at how these verses illustrate what's going on here in this battle. I 
want to start at <clears throat> verse 10, Ephesians 6. <clears throat> now, we know this. <coughs> and we say these verses, and we like them. <laughs> what we have to do is learn how to appropriate them, okay? Finally, I want to say it from the King James, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. That's how I memorize it. All right, I'm going to read from the NIV. <clears throat> finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. <laughs> You are going to intercede against the enemy. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So what we have pictured in this battle is Moses, and we have real people, but here we picture it in the spiritual realms. Moses standing on the hillside, on the hilltop, and Joshua down below. So our struggle is not against Amalek in flesh and blood, but it's against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. Are there some? Yes. The enemy is all around us and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Satan is an active enemy. Our battle is against him. So sometimes we see people bugging us to death and we think our battle is with them. And we need to check ourselves to see if that battle raging within us is really something that's against that person or is it something that Satan is causing to rise up within us. Are my feelings of anger against that person coming because that person really is my enemy? Or is it because I have a, a problem here with relationships and God wants to work on me through that person? All right? Do you see what I'm getting at? In other words, a lot of the times we're battling people. We don't like them. We don't like what they do. But maybe what God is saying to us, okay, you've got a problem. That person has a problem too, but I want to work on you in this problem. I want you to learn how to call down the powers of heaven to work within your heart so that you're able to cope. Okay? So here we have our struggle against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the whole armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you might be able to stand your ground. That's what Joshua was doing. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and we stand against the evil one. Now Joshua is down below in person fighting. 
But the enemies are spiritual enemies. And so Moses is praying and imploring the God of heaven. Now, this is where the intercessor, the physical intercessor comes in. Verse 18, and pray in the spirit, that's talking to me, on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, now Paul is saying, I need you to intercede for me. Pray. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray for one another. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, the words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Now, what this scripture is telling us is that we can enter in prayer on our own behalf against the enemy who is coming to attack us. We can put on the whole armor of God and we can see ourselves in Christ Jesus in heavenly places and calling on the powers of heaven to work here on earth. That's what we do when we pray all of the time. But there is also a place for a personal intercessor to come into our lives and pray sometimes. Sometimes we just need a buddy, a prayer partner, an intercessor to stand in the gap for us when we're beating, beaten up on the ground. You see that? Here's Satan, and he's after us, and he's bugging us, and we are calling on the Lord, and we don't seem to get anywhere. And sometimes then we need a person, an intercessor, and that's what Moses is doing. He's standing up there on the ground, on the hill, and calling out for the powers of heaven to help this man, Joshua. Give him the power. Two of us praying together, three of us praying together, is power against the enemy. Does it mean we're not to pray alone? Call on the powers of God and take our stand in heavenly places against the enemy? But sometimes the enemy is too great, and we need to call on help from others, and that's what happens here. I want you to look at Galatians. Um, let's see. I want, I want to make sure I get the verse right that I want. Go to, go to Matthew 18. I have to quit here, Michelle. <laughs> Martha? Yes. We have to remember that God had a covenant with Moses. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, when we are moved to raise our hands in worship, it is to match the nails that were in Jesus' hands, that reminding him that we have a covenant with him. Okay, I'm not sure about that, but I do know that we do have the covenant of God upon us and the grace and, and love of God. But I want to go to Matthew 18, 18. It says this, I will tell you the truth. Whatever you bind on earth, and that's what the intercessors do, whatever you bind on earth, whatever you say stop, whatever you hold, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed on heaven, in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth shall agree on anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Holding 
fast against the enemy. That's what Moses, Aaron, and Hur did on behalf of Joshua and the Israelites. Sometimes we need that help of other persons. Sometimes God just simply says, call on me and I will answer you. But when we need that extra help and we know that we need it, we need to not feel that we cannot call on somebody and share that prayer with them. Any comments before I, I'm going to turn this over to Michelle in a minute. Yes. Just a quick one. Af, um, earlier on in my life as a Christian, there were times when things were going fairly well after something tough, tough had happened. And I would start thinking, uh oh, this is going too well. When's the next shoe going to drop? And I think, you know, that's really, that's really terrible mm -hmm. because we need all those things. And as you grow in your spiritual life, you realize, yes, those things are going to come. And from past experience, we know that God will bring us through. Mm -hmm. You see, when those things happen, we have to believe that the Lord is there and in those things. And that we have the authority in him to call on him. And he will answer us. That there's strength in numbers. That's why when people say, pray for me, we need to be careful to do it. That those battles are heavy. I'm going to leave you with this. Um, the last verses in this chapter are really important. Amalek is an enemy um, that will fight with Christians from generation to generation. That's what it says in Exodus. What that means is that the enemy of God will fight with believers from time immemorial, from generation to generation. The flesh is active all the time, and Satan moves upon our flesh to pull us down. Amalek will have war. God will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. But the promise is that in the end, the enemy will be destroyed. And that's our hope. I have some verses down at the bottom, Galatians 5, Colossians 3, and, and um, Philippians 3. If you have a chance to look at those, what they're talking about is what God wants to do for us while we're in the valley. And the promise that we have in him um, in Exodus 17, after the battle, um, I just want to close with this real quick. It says, write on a scroll is something to be re remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under the earth. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. He's the one I hold when I'm in battle. I hold up the banner of the Lord. I'm working under him. He said, for hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord and the Lord will be at war against the Am Amalekites from generation to generation. And so we know that in the end, the Lord will triumph. But he requires us to call upon him when we need him. Okay, Michelle, I'll turn it over to you. She told me I could take some extra time today, so.
so as March is teaching and we're kind of thinking, you know, this is our last lesson in this series and I'm thinking about pictures painted. It just keeps coming to my head. The pictures that God has painted in the Old Testament for us to know now and that the pr great privilege that we have, if you think about, you know, they, you know, when, when, um, we were, Joan was talking about them getting, you know, cutting a little bit of slack for them not knowing, but we know now, and, and the blessing that we have in the word of truth just feels like a warm blanket to say, wow, Lord, I can really see what you have in the Old Testament was a picture of what was to come. And we've talked about this in the series where um, God is doing, you know, what he's doing for the sake of the um, Israelites, for the sake of the Egyptians, and even for the sake of the Jews to come that are going to need to know these things and think about them in order to believe in Jesus that he had written about. Jesus in the, you know, in the Old Testament. And so um, for me, when I think about this lesson and, and all these lessons that we've done, just the great truth that we have in the Bible and how it just solidifies what happened so long ago to what happened with Jesus, to how that can just rock solid roots of faith, you know, and I'm just so thankful for the the study and I hope that you guys have felt that way too because as we see it closing here I just kind of reflecting a little bit and especially as Marsha was teaching so let's go back to water from the rock and throughout this whole time it's been my job to say what how can we apply water from the rock to our lives and um, what can we learn? And it says in Romans 15, four at the top of your lesson there, um, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, that we might have hope that we can show the hope that we have. And, um, so how do we apply water from the rock to our lives? And I start with, um, thinking about the Israelites that they, moved from grumbling because they just had the water situation, right? They moved from grumbling to quarreling with Moses over the same issue. And it says um, there in verse seven um, that to give us some water and then also, you know, is the Lord among us or not? And Moses refers to it as testing. So I thought, well, maybe they're saying something like what I wrote here. It's likely they're saying something like, <coughs> if God, you are with us, then show us the drink. Mm -hmm. But they've had all these living by miraculous things that we've talked about. You know, they, they saw all the plagues. They saw the healing from the plagues. They saw themselves protected over the, you know, they've seen the separating of the water. They've seen the masses being released. But here they come back to this. What kind of faith would you describe this as? How would you describe their faith right now? Shallow. Shallow. Not super deep roots. <coughs> kind of weak. Wishy-washy. Yeah, wishy-washy. <laughs> Always based upon their immediate need. Based upon immediate need. But, as Joan was saying, to cut them some slack, right? Because this is how they've kind of been knowing God is to, like, provide every time in big, bold, miraculous type things. But I think God did cut them slack because they've already complained about this and he's shown. But there then he paints the picture of what, you know, the rock, the Jesus smitten in the water from the rock. I think he did cut them slack here because of uh, maybe a different leader like myself would have been like, Shh, we already went over this. Like, you know, I'm here. Just have some faith, you know? So I was reading Max Licato's book, You're Not Alone. And he said, this is, I think this is really neat, about contingent faith. He said, the contingent faith is like the faith of sidewalk chalk. It's beautiful when the sun is shining. But when it rains, it's washed away. 
Have you guys heard that before? Mm-hmm. So I was just like, whoa, you know how you read something else and it applies? I'm like, I had to share that. So we do not want the sidewalk chalk face. When the sun is shining is when it's good, but when it when the rain comes, and we as Christians know that the rain is coming. So what we need to apply and what they needed to apply is those deep roots of faith, okay, where we can trust and know that God is going to provide even in those hard, hard times because they keep coming just as the Israelites were experiencing. So in question two, I wrote, the Israelites did not have deep roots of faith when we observe that from their behavior. They've kind of been living by sight with all the wonders and um, miracles that they've seen God work out. So what we want to do now is think about our own faith. We want to live by faith and not by sight. So let's look at 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Okay, now from studying, the first part of 2 Corinthians here starts with the therefore, which means we need to put a little bit of context behind it. And so the therefore, before, what Paul is saying here is, because of Jesus' death, because of the new covenant that we have, because of um, God's glory and what you see him to be doing within you. And so you think about that for yourself. You've seen God. You know, Anne talked about being from baby Christian to more mature Christian. You've seen the work. And because you've seen the work that is basically unseen, therefore, we do not lose heart. Through outwardly, we are wasting away, yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on not what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. So then the question you ask yourself is, why aren't these big signs, as we grow those roots of faith, as important? Why can we just live by faith and not always having to see these big miracles happen. Why is that? Because we're embodied in the physical realm at the same time as having a spiritual existence and it's just so easy to forget. It is easy to forget, for sure. But what is, you know, does anybody else have any comments before I share mine? Why can we go on? Why can you and I not need miracles every day or when things go bad. Why? We have hope and eternal glory. We have hope and eternal glory. Our always everything that we are experiencing right now. Yep. And we know that those troubles will bring us to that. Right. Our troubles and our trials from very much what we've learned in Exodus and in our life experiences that God has purpose with those and he's growing and he's developing us so that we can rest strong in, you know, in him and the hope that we have. The things that are seen are temporary, right? Okay, so then if you go down just a little bit further, um, Corinthians 5, 7, it's the fact that we live by faith and not by sight. And the guarantee is in the spirit of what's to come. And then in Hebrews 11.1, 1, it talks about what faith is. So let's turn to Hebrews. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And it says this is what the ancients were commended for, which Moses is one of the ancients that is commended for this. So as review and you think about our lessons that we've learned is when did you start to see Moses 
step away from the living by sight and moving on to a living by faith. Did anything stand out for you as you think back into our lessons? Because God kind of walked him through every step of the place, didn't he? But then I think about the Passover and the faith that it took for him to go teach all these people when he probably sounded Looney Tunes, like you were talking about, <laughs> to have faith and say, I know that God is going to do this and it is important that you get that blood over your doorstep. We kind of see it there. And then we see it at the crossing of the sea when everyone is freaking out, looking behind them and being like, they're coming. And he's like, stand firm. You know? So we start to see that grow and develop. And then also in the wilderness, when just what we read, he's like, why are, why are you coming to me and grumbling? God's going to provide for us, you know, and he's, the man is going to come and the water from the rock is going to come. So we start to see even Moses go from baby steps to leaps. And that's us too. And that's in our lives where we start by meeting those, those, um, miraculous things and that confirmation. But then we get to a point where we're like, we trust, we trust in you, God. We've seen what you've done. We see what your Holy Scripture says. We see what our teachers say. And we've experienced, you know, and that faith starts to grow and grow. And we start to live by faith and not by sight. And then the last thing I want to talk about to that is when Jesus talks to um, the Jews there in John 4. So this is right after what Marcia just went through with a Samaritan woman and people in Samaria were hearing what he said and coming to faith. And then we have it where Jesus heals the official's son. And he kind of says this warning. So in um, verse 46 there, it says, Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick in Capernaum. When... When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. And this is where Jesus is saying, and he's talking to the Jews, unless you people see some miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. So the warning there is not that miraculous things aren't important, because they are. They, you know, he did the water to wine to teach his disciples, and then he went and did the, um, he knew all the stuff about the Samaritan woman. But the fact is, always needing it and depending upon it withholds you from living by faith when you always are needing that. And that's kind of where the Israelites are always needing that provision from God to be very obvious. And then they start to test him. But the truth is, and what Shalane was saying earlier is that the doubt does come, right? We've experienced that before, but I don't, want to just poo-poo all the doubt because from that you can even grow further you know as you start to analyze and think about your doubt so I put in that last question when God produced water from the rock did he pass their test do you think he did I mean it had to be pretty amazing <laughs> you know is the Lord with us or not well let's hit a rock and see flows of water coming through <laughs> After all they had witnessed up to this point, their doubtful attitude is sinful, yet God overwhelmed them with evidence. And I think, again, what a merciful God cutting them slack to say, oh, I'm here. Let me show you. Hit the rock. And you know, whoosh. it wasn't just yeah. a trickle. Right. right. Outpouring. Yeah. 
So doubt can creep in, you know, especially in stressful and overwhelming situations for us. So how do we live? And I, and I, I want everyone to, to think about this. What do you do? Because we have been faced with doubt before. What are some tips? What are some things that you do as mature Christians to get through when doubt settles? When? Remember what he's done before. Remember what he's done or and said? Remember what he's done before in our lives. Mm-hmm. Yep. Everybody's got at least one story. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, you have plenty here. <laughs> in the word, go to the truth. I know when I was going through some hard times with the COVID stuff, God kept saying to me, Michelle, what do you know to be true? Like, keep, keep saying that to me. What do you know to be true? Forget about all the lies and the things you're hearing and the chaos. What do you know to be true? And then I stuck with me deeply because then I can just start thinking, okay, what do I know to be true? I know you're a good God. I know you love me. I know you've gotten me this far. I see you working in the lives of fellow Christians. I see you working in the church. What do I know to be true? You know, and hang on that in prayer, you know? Anybody else have any things that they do? Remembering that God knows the whole situation, even if we don't see anything before the time. Yeah. Okay. Fred and oh, I I just think it's so important too during those hard times to really stay in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Everybody says that you hear it all the time, but mm-hmm. even if it's ten minutes to like take that time, get in the Bible, mm-hmm. and have a few minutes to pray, because it just puts everything in perspective otherwise satan just uses your situation to just bring you down or to put fear into your life or just to get back into the word and put things in perspective yeah to focus on god and for me it's always to remember god is sovereign he is in control no matter how the world is spinning out of control mm-hmm. he knows and he's still in control and that's back to going to truth. That's truth. Oh, we had one more. Oh, I just echo the staying in the word every day because the more you're in the word, the more the spiritual things are real to you. And what you see is less real to you. Or you know that there's smoke and mirrors involved. Mm-hmm. And I really like what it says in Hebrews 11. Faith is substance and evidence. That's very tangible, real language. And when you're in the Word every day, it's real and it's tangible. And when you're not, you're floating around. I was just going to add, um, I, I think there's a lot of power in fellowship and community, especially when you're going through challenging times. Um, to have someone to raise their hands on your behalf and to support you in, uh, during those times. Yep, that's a great transition to my next my next thought there. In Exodus seventeen eight through six, the Malachites attack, and it takes God power, God's power, the leadership to trust in Him, the love of the community to work together to defeat the enemy. And the question there is. Um, as we move to the story of the Amalekites is thinking about spiritual warfare and praying for other people and the importance of being in Christian community. Now, um, with, with Stacy Hansen's situation, it's fresh, it's new. 
That's why I bring it up. And I, I was just overwhelmed with seeing people within our church go hold their hands up. Every day there's someone in our church who helped her. And, and I didn't know that until they, you know, they talked about it. And I just thought, we need that. We need to be the church family that can hold each other up. And the, the, the importance of it is, it's just so important because it, it's showing God's love through other people. And then my question I said, is there, has anybody experienced that kind of in community that it made a difference? Anybody experience the Christian community making a difference? I don't think there's anybody in this room that has gone through it more than I did. And I, my lowest point, uh, every day I could feel the prayers going up on my behalf. It gave me emotional strength and physical strength to just go forward. You know, I, I, for those that don't know, I was going through chemo and radiation at the same time I lost my husband in, in an accident. And I couldn't have made it without the prayers that went up on my behalf. Mm -hmm. I could feel them every day, physically. Mm -hmm. It was wonderful to know that you have love. And I feel too strongly that God places those people mm -hmm. there to like show you that He knows we need physical, you know, that kind of stuff, and, and to place those people in our path to say, I feel like it's God saying, I love you, mm -hmm. you know? Has anybody else had anything like that happen? When um, we were in, an, in another church, we were growing strong. That was our church home, but God led us here at that time. And that was through our kids because they were coming here and God just said, you need to be where your kids are being ministered to, go with them. And at that time we didn't understand it, but when we got here, we went through a very tough time in our lives and if we would have been where we were, we wouldn't have had what we got when we got here. Mm -hmm. um, Pastor Daryl just led us to other people that were going through the same mm -hmm. thing. And through that, we, we grew, we were with each other, um, just building up, and, and God took us through that. And mm -hmm. as we look, as hard as it was to leave where we were, we saw that God was at work in, in bringing us here for, for that purpose. And... Um, yeah, it's just very important to to have people in your lives that you can go to, that you go through the same thing together, and um, you just open up your heart and be honest with people. And then us too, you know, thinking about who's around us that needs us too. You know, that makes you think not only myself, what do I need, but what do others need for me, and what experiences have you all went through that could help somebody else? And all of it is just so important to be in community and. Um, I am thankful for this church. <laughs> and it can be um, humbling and embarrassing or something to ask for people's prayers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that makes us real. Yeah. Really. And other people are not going to share their trials with us if we don't aren't willing to mm -hmm. let them know that you know that we have experienced things too. Right. Yeah. Transparency. We didn't get this in the. Um, in the church that we were growing up in, you didn't show emotions, you didn't talk about problems, and that's really a shame. Mm -hmm. Michelle? Yeah. Oh, sorry. <clears throat> Last week I was feeling especially burdened, and the ladies at Soup Group just all banded together and prayed for me, and it was very heartfelt. Mm -hmm. felt wonderful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
That's great. God's moving. Okay, so to, to wrap up and kind of transition us into um, the parable study that we're going to have, I've always had a parable that stood out in my head. And when, Mar- when Marsh and I talked about doing parables, I'm like, oh, I should look that one up. And um, that's, in, that's in Luke 16. So if you want to turn there. And I've always thought about it. You know how, um, well, it might just be me. Um, you think about scripture and you don't necessarily have it word for word memorized, but some things can impact you and then you think about them later. Well, this is one of those parables where I think about um, when you think about your death and like, oh my, can, well, let's read it first. So you'll totally know. <laughs> let's just read. I'm like thinking, I can't explain this without reading it. Okay. So um, Luke 16, 19 through 30. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. Now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Okay, so just stop right there. And my point was saying that I always think about, boy, can people in this place of torment actually say, I wish I wasn't here and go save other people. So I think about that in families and people that aren't saved. Like, are people thinking, oh, you know, go save them. I don't know the answer to that, but I thought about this parable and I read it. And then I read it to completion and it talks about Moses. So I thought, okay, let's bring it up today. So in verse 29, Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So when I think about this in terms of what we're studying now, I go back to the beginning and I say, God painted pictures in what we have studied so that we would have the hope that we have in Christ and it would be solidified. He did that for the Jews. He did that for us. He did that for the Samaritans. And I think the importance of God working in Moses's life, God working in the prophets is something to listen to, something to study and to wrap yourself around. And in, in, I mean, I don't want to go through this parable and what it all means, but I, I want to look at that and say, thank you, God, for what Moses wrote down. Thank you for the pictures that we have in Christ. And that can be solidified in us of what they had and what God was leading to. When you think about just a final thought before we wrap up here is when I was studying this and Marsha and I were talking about that rock was smitten. 
And that is a picture of Jesus Christ, the rock. He was smitten once. You think about, I've always questioned what happens to Moses. Why can't he go to the promised land? Because he strikes another rock. Because he strikes another rock. And he's supposed to just speak. And I think, what is the big deal? (laughs) The, The lack of faith that the Israelites had seemed much more than just striking a rock. But if you think about the picture of Jesus being struck once, that took care of what? It took care of everything. We don't need to go back and strike the rock again. We need to just talk to Jesus about our sins. And so it just, I'd never heard that before. And that could just be me, but I wanted to share that at the very end to say that what we have in Jesus is we don't have to strike the rock again. And, And Moses was punished for that because it would have messed up the picture the picture of the hope that we have in Christ. Yeah. So in the wilderness, the Israelites had the provision of bread, the provision of water, and now in this finality chapter of 17, they have the, the provision of victory over the enemy. And for us, that's what we have. We have all these provisions in Christ, and it's a victory for us. So praise God. Let's just end in prayer. Lord, I just thank you for your word. I f- I'm so thankful for the blanket of truth and the warmth and the comfort and the solidifying of faith that it gives to us. I pray that we we have grown. I pray that these women have grown. I know that I have grown and I am thankful. And I just pray that as we grow, that we will be light in the dark and that we will be able to shine before all the untruth that is out there. Keep us in your word, Lord. Keep us passionate for it. And I just pray now that those requests that are in people's hearts, the hard places, the wilderness that some people are in, I just pray that you would lift us up and that you would show us your provision, Lord. And I thank you for Jesus. All in Jesus' name, amen.